May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In 1990, um, a 13-year-old Chicago boy named Brian Rosinski walked into a sports collection shop, and he bought a 1968 Nolan Ryan rookie card for $12. This became a national story because the, the, the clerk who had put the price tag on the card had no idea of the card's value. And so he wrote 12.00, thinking $12 seems like a pretty expensive card. The card was worth $1,200. Brian Rosinski walked in the store, and he knew exactly what the card was worth. And he looked down, and he saw it. And as the story goes, he looks up at the clerk and says, you know, $12 is an awful lot of money for a 13-year-old boy. Well, the guy says, that's what the price says. That's what I've got to sell it for. And so he dug into his pockets and pulled out his loose change and ponied up the $12 and walked out of the shop with a buy of a lifetime, a Nolan Ryan rookie card for $12. For those of you who do not know much about baseball, first of all, shame on you. Um, second of all, um, Nolan Ryan is, um, he is, by all accounts, the greatest pitcher of all time. He threw seven, seven no-hitters. The next closest threw four, and then three, and then we have nobody else who's even close. It is likely that there will never be another pitcher to throw seven no-hitters. He was one of a kind, and Brian Rosinski was no dummy. He saw this card, and he knew what it was worth. Next day, the shop owner comes in, realizes his lackey attendant had sold this card at a 99% discount and was outraged. He found out who bought the card, and um, apparently young Mr. Rosinski came in quite often, and so he phoned him up and said, you know exactly what you've done. I want my card back. Mr. Rosinski, for his part, said, sorry, mister, I paid the price on the tag. It's my card. I'm keeping it. And... um, and, and the shop owner went out and immediately filed suit against the middle, middle schooler to get his, his card back. Uh, John Liptick was a, a Chicago tri- Tribune sports writer. He heard about this, wrote an article about it, and it went kind of crazy around the country. Everybody had an opinion on it. Here's the issue. The issue was, you know, the, the, the boy knew, you know, he knew what the card was worth and that he bought it in, in a, sort of a deception as if to say, um, you know, uh, if, if he had gotten a $100 bill instead of a 10 and change, that he would have a moral obligation to give that money back. And the other part was, the other half of the argument was, well, hey, this is the price of doing business. You know, you make a dumb mistake, it's going to cost you. You know, the, be wiser next time. And, and so all over the country, people who are arguing back and forth, the, court, uh, the, the case goes to court. Before it gets there, somehow they worked out a deal. They would arc, auction the card off and give all of the money to charity. The card sold at auction for $5,000. And for those of you who are thinking it's ridiculous that any baseball card would sell for $5,000, let me tell you that last year the same card, the Nolan Ryan rookie, sold for $24,500. Poor young Brian Rosinski should have held on to that and bought a year at college or something, right? I think my penchant for a good bargain is well-established territory with most of you by now. You know, I, I have this love. It doesn't have to be something of real intrinsic value. I don't mean I don't need to. I don't expect to find a Picasso at a flea market or a Stradivarius at a garage sale. I look. You know, I, I'm I'm on the lookout, but I don't expect that. 
I just want to find a cool pair of sunglasses, you know, or a, or a Civil War bayonet for 10 bucks. That's what I want. Something that, that, you know, that I would find would be, you know, of value to me. The other day I walked into the Acme, and um, as soon as I walked in, they had eggs for 88 cents a dozen. I thought it was wonderful. I mean, it made my day. A dozen of eggs for 88 cents. I couldn't be... I mean, but that's not the way things usually work, is it? No. Usually, every time you go into the grocery, every time you go to do something, if prices go up, they're always going up. I told my kids the other day, I'm like, I remember, and I do remember this, I remember buying soft-serve ice cream cones from an ice cream truck for a dime. My, mo- my mother would give me a dime. I'd run out and catch the ice cream truck and buy a cone. And I tell them this story, and they roll their eyes at me. And they say, you know, Nixon's not in the White House anymore, Dad. You know, stuff like that. It- it's not 1974. Yeah, things change. Do you know that Henry Ford sold his first Model A for $800 in 1903? $800. I looked it up. In 1920, coffee was 47 cents a pound. In 1935, there was a, a, a farm in, in Marion, Ohio. had a house, a barn, 150 acres. It sold for $4,000. Yeah, right? It, I was born in 1969. Okay, in the winter of 1969. In the spring and early summer of 1969, my grandmother and grandfather would meet after work on the corner of, um, of Haverhill and Falmouth in Springfield, Ohio, and they would, they would have lawn chairs and sandwiches, and they would hold baby Joey in their arms, wrapped up in a blanket, and they would watch these builders building their new home, for which they were about to pay the robust sum of $22,000. In 1980, one more, in 1980, the average price of a new car was $7,200. The same you know, model type of car today is worth more than four times that much. Everything costs more. I walked into to the Acme the other day when I saw the eggs and had to pick up some ice cream. And I went back and I saw the, the I shouldn't pick on Briars, but I saw this Briars ice cream and it wasn't, it, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't as much as I expected. I thought, well, this is not so bad. I mean, it's a little bit painful, but not so bad. And I, I, I get it out. Do you know that half a gallon of ice cream only has three pints in it now? They took an entire pint of ice cream out of it. Everything costs more. You get less. One thing you can count on in this world is inflation. And I think Jesus' contemporaries understood that even better than we do. They knew how tough it was to get by. That they watched their pennies. That they were careful about all their expenditures. In the first century world, there was no middle class. You were either wealthy or you were peasant. Most of it were peasant farmers, or they were, were peasant laborers like Jesus was, or they were um, peasant fishermen. They, they were hand-to-mouth subsistence living. So when Jesus talks about paying a price, everybody's ears would have perked up. They know the price of living. They know what it costs. Remember the scene just prior to this, uh, from last week's so he Jesus had gone to dinner at the home of some Pharisees. And he embarrassed them. He pointed out their, their tendency towards spiritual hubris. And he leaves, and look what happens. A crowd begins to follow him. A large crowd. He has stood up to the authorities, and now here, the crowds are following. They want to see. This is the time 
where Jesus should be giving the, um, you know, Mel Gibson in Braveheart speech. You know, they can take away everything, but they can't take away our freedom, you know, and rallying. Anybody? Anyway, rallying the troops. That's not what he does. Here's what he does. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turns and he says to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself. I think better to say, yes, even his or her own life. I think it would be a better way to translate this last part. Cannot be my disciple. It's like Jesus doesn't have friends, you know. If he had had friends, real friends, you know what my friends would have done? They would have pushed me down and said, Joe, stop talking like that. Are you, are you a knucklehead? Don't do that. I had two brothers. They would do the same thing, right? No. This is, this, we're never going to get this movement off the ground. You know, you can't talk like that. That's, that's foolishness. It's ridiculous. What kind of friend does, you know, look at it, nobody. Some of us might think, oh, you, you know, here's what he's talking about. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's talking about being part of the inner circle, you know, like one of the 12, part of the apostolic team. You know, you want to be like Peter or James or John, one of these guys. This is what it costs. But no. A disciple is a garden variety follower. Anybody who wants to follow, he turns and he looks at the crowd and says, listen to me. Unless you're willing to hate your father or mother, your wife and your children, yes, even your own life, you cannot come. You're not welcome. Turn around. Go home. This word hate, I think, is a bit confusing. I don't think he means that we ought to have this, you know, animosity towards family. I think what he's saying is when we compare anyone else to him, by comparison, it's hatred. Um, Joel Green, uh, he, he writes this, Hatred is not primarily an affective quality, not a quality of emotion, but a disavowal of primary allegiance to one's kin. In the first century, family was all you had. Family was it. That was social security. <laughs> that was everything. It, it, this, is, this is how you're going to be taken care of if you ever need anything. You need family. And Jesus says, number one cannot be father or mother, husband or wife, nay, not even your own life. I have to come first. It gets worse. And whoever will not carry his cross cannot be my disciple. Well, you know, it's one thing to say you got to come first. But now you're talking about crucifixion? <laughs> In the ancient world, they knew what crucifixion was about. Crucifixion was, as far as I know, only used by the Romans. And they even reserved it only for people who were political dissidents. People who tried to stir up a rebellion. We will quell any rebellion because when you see this, when you see this happening one time, it will be the deterrent you never thought you needed. You know, this will deter all Possible rebellions. It's such a cruel form of torture. Jesus says, if you're not willing to die on a Roman cross, you cannot be my disciple. It's an ultimatum 
of, you know, magnificence kind of uh, uh, spectacular circumstances. If you're not willing to die, you're not fit to be my disciple. And then he gives, he gives two lessons. And these both come from, um, from accounting of sorts. You'll have to get with, uh, with Tom Good later and talk about this. It's called cost-benefit analysis. Okay? Does, does the price that you pay, is it worth the benefit that you're going to get? You've got to sit down and think about this. The first one is this. If you're going to build a tower, you ought to sit down and calculate exactly how much it's going to cost. And if you've ever built anything, you should calculate how much it costs and you add 20% because that's what's going to happen, right? It's never going to go the way you plan. Because if you start to build a tower and you lay a foundation and you start to build the structure and run out of money, you're going to be like an object of ridicule to everyone who walks by that. Take note if you're a preacher from Cuyahoga Falls. You know, you might know something about the story. Anyway, um, yeah, don't build a tower unless you know how much it's going to cost to finish it. Because you'll be ridiculed. Calculate exactly what it's going to cost you. The second one is this. Don't get in a fight with somebody who can beat you up. I know that you said, well, this is about two kings, one with 10,000, one with 20,000. Okay, same thing. Don't pick a fight with somebody if you can't win that fight. Here's the point. Following Jesus can become expensive. It's not rainbows and puppy dogs all the time. Following Jesus might cost a lot. It might cost a lot more than we ever think. I mean, following Jesus could lead to a cross. It could lead to a backwoods African village. It could lead to um, a Middle Eastern beheading. Perish the thought, Hudson. Following Jesus could lead us to Pittsburgh. You know, we could be... Who knows what kind of place we could end up. Following Jesus means embracing this unknown will of God in our lives. That we have to take it no matter what. And sometimes it's costly. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, oh man, it's goodness. It's just, it's sweet smelling casseroles and fresh clean linens and all the good trappings of life. But sometimes it's not. Here's the message. Count the cost. Know what it costs to follow Jesus. Because unless, a better translation of the last verse in this, verse 33, unless we're willing to bid farewell to everything, we are not fit to be his disciples. You know, the church is fond of dispensing grace on just about everything. I mean, we're so good at it. We have blessings for everything. Um, We have blessings for animals. I love animals too. But we'll bless anything. You bring it, we'll bless it. You know, this is what we do. We dispense grace freely. Um, Sometimes, though, this is in conflict with God's will in the world. Sometimes God doesn't want to dispense grace so freely. Um, Bonhoeffer called this type of grace cheap grace. And he, he, he contrasted it with costly grace, grace that costs a lot. Um, it, it's, the, it's the type of grace for which Jesus really did bleed and die. That grace requires discipleship. And discipleship is always following Jesus. Bonhoeffer's great quote, When Christ bids a person to follow, he bids them to come and die. Come follow me. Yes, if we turn to God, he'll forgive us for our sins. Of course he will. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that God will give us the grace to follow Jesus wherever he leads. That's good news. And that the gospel is that by following Jesus, we'll be transformed, become qualitatively different kinds of people. 
But Christ must come first. He must come first in all of our lives. There is no second place. He will not take that. And this is the message from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy as well, wasn't it? God said, I have to be first. Jesus is saying the exact same thing in the gospel lesson. But there's a beautiful lining to this. This is the, this is the promise. This is the silver lining. <laughs> that when we come to Christ, he does transform us. He'll make us qualitatively better human beings. The man who follows Jesus becomes a better person. If he's married, he becomes a better husband to his wife. If he has children, a better father to his children. A better worker, a better a citizen, a better human being in the world. If a woman follows Jesus, and if she's married, she becomes a better wife to her husband, a better father to her children, a mother to her children. If she's not married, she becomes a better friend to her friends, a better sister to her Fellow women, that Christ changes us, makes us qualitatively better human beings. I know that there are difficulties, things that happen. There are um, divorce, rifts in friendship, firings, all those sorts of things that happen in the world. But the exception proves the rule that Christ does change people. He makes their life better. And the greatest gift that any person can give their family or their friends or their country is to follow Jesus. When young uh, Brian Rosinski walked into the uh, baseball card shop and bought that, um, that Nolan Ryan rookie card for $12, he knew, he knew he was getting by on the cheap. I mean, he knew that this was, it was if it's too good to be true, what mama say? It, it is, you know. He knew that. Jesus tells us straight out, doesn't hide it at all. If you want to follow me, it will cost you everything. Everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.